0: Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level, the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness.
2: As you may already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine. And we're offering you the chance to try six issues of Britain's best-selling history magazine for just £9.99. That's a saving of 72% on the shop price. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you can subscribe for just 49 99 for 13 issues, saving 65%. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the spring of 1940, more than 20,000 Polish prisoners of war disappeared in the Soviet Union, seemingly without a trace. It was three years before their bodies were discovered and half a century until the Soviets admitted responsibility for the crime. In her new book, Surviving Katyn, the historian and biographer Jane Rogoyska tells the story of the Katyn massacre and the decades-long cover-up that ensued. Jane spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar.
3: Your book describes the fate of thousands of Polish prisoners of war who were in Soviet captivity in the Second World War. To begin with, could you explain how it was that these Poles ended up being captured by Soviet forces?
4: So, I suppose most people in the West are very familiar with the outbreak of World War II as beginning at the beginning of September. The Nazis invade Poland, and that's the reason why Britain and France declared war. I suppose what people tend to think about a little bit less is what happened roughly two weeks after that, which was on September the 17th, when the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east. And um, the reason they'd done this was a, a direct consequence of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which was a very last minute agreement between Stalin and Hitler, which uh, allowed them to arrange between themselves that uh, Hitler could invade Poland from the west and Stalin could invade from the east. Um And so from the Polish army's perspective, it came as a complete and utter surprise, a complete shock. So the army were retreating very hurriedly and in great chaos from the Nazi onslaught. um, And they fell right into the hands of the Red Army, who they didn't even know whether they should be greeting them as friends or enemies. And hundreds of thousands of Polish soldiers were taken prisoner.
3: And the prisoners that we're talking about specifically in this book and in this story, these are not just regular Polish troops, are they? They're a specific subcategory of those.
4: So initially, vast numbers of Polish soldiers, officers were, were taken prisoner. But soon, a large number of the privates and the NCOs were set free and were allowed to go back home. And the ones who were specifically kept in these three camps, which I speak about in my book, were mainly officers, but also police, gendarmes, prison officers, border officials, judges, intelligence agents. Um, And they were basically a category of people who were of specific interest to the NKVD, which was the precursor of the KGB and what's now called the FSB, the uh, Soviet secret police, if you like.
3: And one thing reading your book that I found really interesting was that considering what we know of Stalin's Soviet Union and how they treated prisoners and also the eventual fate of these um, soldiers, the camps they were kept in seemed relatively benign. Their treatment wasn't actually that bad, certainly compared to other prisoners in Soviet captivity and German captivity through the war. I mean, why do you think it was that the NKVD actually treated them
4: relatively mildly? That's a very interesting question, because these three camps were, I suppose you could call them intelligence camps. So they're quite an unusual category of camp. So as you say, they're not the gulag. You're not being worked to death, mining in Kolyma in Siberia. But they're also not the kind of Koldit style officer, prisoner of war camp that we associate with World War II and which um, followed the the generally accepted rules according to the Geneva Convention or the Hague Convention, where officers could be expected to be treated in in a particular way. And the Soviet Union wasn't a signatory to any of these conventions. uh, But nevertheless, there was a deliberate policy on the part of the NKVD that they would treat them you know, marginally better than they were. They were not particularly well treated. They were kept in very impoverished, freezing cold conditions. They were they worked, they didn't get a lot of food, but they weren't beaten and they weren't... So violence was absent. And I think the main reason for this was the reason why they had been kept there, which is that the NKVD were primarily interested in, in two things. They wanted intelligence and they wanted conversion, to communism. So, what they really wanted to do is they had this uh, captive audience, if you like, of um, people of, of enormous potential interest to them, but also people who were um, highly professional, highly educated, who could either, under the right influence, be persuaded to accept communism, so they hoped, the NKVD hoped. Um, or could be persuaded to give up intelligence or interesting information. So they realized they had to be a bit more subtle than they would in other circumstances. And there was a very specific distinction made between treating people as prisoners of war and treating them as criminals. So if you were taken to the Lubyanka in Moscow, for example, uh, and you were interrogated there, it was as a criminal. And if you got sent to the Gulag, it was because you had been tried um, and sent off to to a labour camp and uh, your sentence was a certain number of years and that that you were treated in that way because they considered you a criminal.
3: And then the big moment happens in the spring of 1940 and the decision is taken to execute the majority of these Polish prisoners. Do we know who took this decision and
4: why? Well, the decision to kill the prisoners in the three special NKVD camps. In There were three of them. There was Kozelsk, Starobiask and Ostashkov. And the decision to, to kill them came very late. We don't have much documentation because most of it was destroyed. But we do have a crucial document, which is dated the 5th of March, 1940. And we know that it was signed off uh, by Stalin and that this document comes from the head of the NKVD, Lavorante Beria. So the decision was taken at the very, very top of uh, Soviet power as to precisely why at that moment in time it's a very open question it's one that i discuss in my book at, uh, in some detail um so the the reason given by barrier in his document is that they're all hardened irremediable enemies of the soviet union and what that reflects is that during the seven months when these men were kept in these prisons, they were interrogated repeatedly. They had their beliefs challenged and questioned over and over again by interrogators, either specialist interrogators from Moscow or uh, staff who, who were in the camps. And their job was to try and find out you know, what these people knew, whether they might be possible collaborators. or And at the end of seven months of this, really what they had discovered was a very, very tiny proportion of these men were willing to collaborate, uh, either because they were pro-communist or because they had decided for whatever reason that, that they were willing to do so. The vast majority stuck to their loyalty to the Polish government in exile, which uh, had escaped from Poland uh, uh, during the Soviet invasion, gone to France, and then later um, set itself up in London. So, so really, from a, a point of view of what those camps had set out to do. It had been quite a monumental failure, really, I suppose. Um, as to why specifically they decided to murder them at that point in time, it's a really pretty much impossible question to answer. And In my book, I speak about kind of three categories of answer that you can give. There's a kind of simple answer, a complex answer, and an unknowable one. And the simple answer is that that these were enemies of the Soviet state and with us to be disposed of in the way that any number of categories of people had been killed under Stalin's regime, and most particularly and most recently in the great terror of 1937 to thirty-eight. So there was already a kind of, there was a precedent of mass murder on that scale, of people on the grounds that they were of some cultural or political or social um, danger as perceived by Stalin. Um, So if you look at it from that perspective, you'd think, well, Stalin's main aim was to uh, run Poland as a, not as a direct part of the Soviet Union, but as a satellite state under Soviet control, indirect Soviet control. And that was his aim right from the beginning of the war. And he achieved it. Ultimately, after the war, it became a communist country. Um, And so therefore, any people who could stand against that, who could rebel, who could lead rebellions, uh, would be in his way. So he had an opportunity here to get rid of 14,500 Highly educated professionals, people who were leaders in the in the society, the intelligentsia, as they were as they're known as. Um, so why not? That's one argument. Very brutal, kind of Bolshevik sort of uh, argument about categories of people. A more complex answer is why then? Why April nineteen forty? And you know, a lot of energy is being expended try, trying to answer that question. And again, in the absence of any real documentary evidence, it's quite hard to work out precisely why. Um, Most arguments hinge on the idea that uh, Stalin kept them as long as he thought they might be useful sort of bargaining chips, um, or as long as Beria thought they could get information out of them. And once they reached a point where they thought they were of no use to them and they weren't going to convert them, um, they got rid of them. So the specific timing is sometimes linked to the end of the Soviet-Finnish war, um, that uh, maybe he uh, th- th- there was some sort of theory about needing the places in the camps for prisoners coming from Finland, but that's never really been confirmed um and it's not a particularly strong argument so once again it's 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 not a hundred percent sure and then the unknowable answer is really that we will never know for sure precisely why because amongst the people who were killed were a wide range of uh, personalities and people of different beliefs. They didn't all fall into one particular category. And in a kind of mirror image of that, the people who survived, so a very small number of people who survived, there were many amongst them who were actually quite inimical to the Soviet beliefs. Um, and so that does raise the question of why were they saved and not people who were less uh, energetically anti-communist?
3: So you talked before of, of a number of 14,500 people executed, which is, of course, a, a horrific number. How did the NKVD go about killing that many people?
4: probably might be helpful to explain to people. A lot of people think the Katyn massacre is a single event, which it isn't. And I've talked about 14,500 uh, roughly. But actually, the, the full number is just under 22,000. And that's because the people that we were concerned about during the war were the the prisoners in these three camps. But later on, after the collapse of communism, it became evident that there was a further 7,300 prisoners who were in prisons in Belarusia and Ukraine who were executed under the same order. So the way they went about killing these men was extraordinary for two reasons. The first being that it was done in the utmost secrecy. And the lengths to which the NKVD went to maintain that secrecy was really astonishing because they did it through disinformation. So they managed to create this rumor that the prisoners were going to be sent home And this rumour was built up in all sorts of really fascinating ways. They would drop uh, itineraries in their bunk rooms with a map showing Romania and Greece on it so that the prisoners would get all excited and think, oh, you know, we're going this way. Um, They they started saying that they were going to go via Brest-Litovsk and they were then going to be separated depending on where their families lived and questions they'd answered on this particular questionnaire. They jumped into people's bunk rooms asking in the middle of the night, saying, oh, does anyone here speak Greek? All of this designed specifically to arouse in the prisoners the idea of excitement and trust that they were going somewhere where they wanted to go. What this meant was that when they left the camps in transports which range from... 50 or 60 men to up to 300, and they were loaded onto trains, they went quite willingly. In fact, they went joyfully. And it was the people who were left behind who, for quite considerable time, thought that they were the unfortunate ones. And then the actual physical way in which the murders were carried out um, was Incredibly precise. So we know now, and this wasn't revealed until the 1990s when uh, documents were made available and there were one or two witnesses who were still alive at that at um, NKVD staff who were able to give an idea of what happened. So they were taken to the NKVD prison nearest to the camp where they were, uh, where they had been imprisoned. And they were led one by one downstairs into a soundproofed room where there would be a prosecutor and a man sitting next to him. They would be invited in, asked for their details, give your name, give your date of birth. And then they were told, you may go. And as they turned around, and this varies slightly depending on the camp, but as they turned around to leave, uh, somebody would step up from behind and shoot them at point blank range with a 7.65 millimeter Uh, caliber gun right in the lower back of the neck, near the occiput, and it's a tried and tested method of execution. It involves immediate death and minimal loss of blood. It goes in at the bottom of the neck and comes out at the top of the um, forehead. And then the bodies were dragged uh, out onto waiting trucks. They were sort of piled up in these trucks and they were driven to mass burial pits where they were laid down there's some evidence to show that at the very beginning of the operation they tried executing people on the on the edges of these pits but um i think they decided it was too difficult because obviously the men realized what was happening and they struggled a lot more whereas the 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 one-by-one thing they they were much more taken by surprise um and and thus it was much easier for them to kill them
3: and then how quickly after this happened did people start to become concerned about the whereabouts of these thousands of people. and your book, you talk about the fact that some of these surviving Poles began to wonder what had happened to their comrades.
4: Well, so, so what happened was in April to May 1940, the vast majority of the prisoners from these three camps were taken off destination unknown, but obviously they thought, oh, they're going home. The 395 men who were left behind um, were taken to another camp called Gryazovets. And they basically spent the next over a year in this camp, just the 400 of them, until the uh, invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis led to a complete turnaround in the political situation, and they were then liberated. During that time, when they were kept prisoner in Gyazovets, They weren't allowed to write home for quite some time until about November 1940. So obviously they had absolutely no way of knowing anything at that stage. Once they were allowed to write home, they did get inquiries from family back home saying, have you heard anything from so-and-so? I haven't heard anything since March or April 1940. Do you know anything about them? But at the time, they were more inclined to think that the, everyone else was probably in a similar situation to them, that they had been taken to some camp far away and hadn't been given permission to ride. So it wasn't until much later that s- things started looking s- sort of mysterious and then sinister. So in June 1941, when the Germans turned on their previous allies and invaded the Soviet Union, this resulted in a complete about-face in terms of the uh, Allied situation. So obviously the Soviet Union became Britain's ally, but also it meant that the Polish government in exile, which was Britain's ally, de facto became allied to the Soviet Union. So this little group of 400 men sitting in this camp, who'd been you know, waste, wasting away, um, rotting away in, in sort of oblivion, suddenly uh, were liberated and the Poles were allowed to form a Polish army based in the Soviet Union. So they all went off to form this uh, army and as they began forming it, they were in expectation that their officers would be arriving. And one of the main aspects to know about the prisoners who had disappeared is that the vast majority of them were officers many of them you know the most skilled and most high-ranking officers in the polish army so of the 14 half thousand who were murdered around 10 thousand of those were officers the rest were police officers gendarmes etc so as General Anders, who was charged with uh, organizing this army in the Soviet Union, as he tried to organize them, he was looking for these officers, and everyone was expecting them to show up at any minute. And this silence continued, and it was very strange, because there were, as a consequence uh, of the new alliance between Soviet Union and Poland, hundreds of thousands of people who had, were stuck or been deported uh, to the Soviet Union were trickling down to try and join the army but amongst them, not a single member of this group of people. And so Anders uh, obviously, he was very alarmed. There were diplomatic efforts made. Uh, the uh, Polish ambassador to the Soviet Union, Stanislaw Kot, he was tasked with making official inquiries, uh, to which he just got a series of kind of uh, vague and uh, politely obfuscatory replies. Oh, oh, I don't know where they could possibly be. They must be in Siberia and it's too snowy for them to, or maybe they can't, you know, ridiculous kind of excuses, but they were taken at, at face value. So uh, an officer named uh, Joseph Chapsky, who's a well-known artist, was sent off around the Soviet Union, uh, trying to ask questions of some of the kind of higher-ups in the NKVD hierarchy. And again, met with only polite obfuscation, I think is the only way you could put it. And at the end of several months of getting absolutely nowhere, they began to realise that something was not right, something possibly sinister had happened. Um, I think it was probably only General Anders at that stage who was really willing to call it what it might be and and, and suggest that perhaps these men were dead. But they were still more convinced or willing to be convinced by the idea that these men had been sent to a far-flung labour camp where people died, most of them died, and that perhaps they'd all just perished there. Um, And so it wasn't until until the... Nazis found the mass graves of one of the camps in 1943 that actually a a concrete answer came out. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But most importantly, it's about the lie, the the whole edifice, this entire fake narrative that was, you know, it's a very, very contemporary theme that runs through Katyn's.
0: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to
3: find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So yeah, so that's, that's a really crucial moment in the story, isn't it? Whether the Germans who have invaded the Soviet Union find the mass graves and then they attempted to publicise it, but I suppose it was a bit of a it was a very strange situation because, I mean, half the world was fighting them at this point and their own reputation for like truth-telling and moral probity was, was so low that Did they manage to convince many people that this was a Soviet crime?
4: It's a really fascinating moment. It was was a tremendously important moment in World War II, which has been to some extent forgotten, certainly in the West, um, because it caused the most massive argument. So in April 1943, the um, German army, which had occupied the Smolensk area previously, which, uh, which is close to where one of the camps had been, they had, in March that year, discovered this mass grave containing thousands of Polish officers. Goebbels, the master propagandist, was absolutely delighted at the, at the propaganda possibilities of this because he saw it, quite rightly, as a way of driving a wedge between the Soviet Union and and their Western allies of uh, Britain and the United States. So he made a huge international uh, hoo-ha about this big declaration saying, look what the Bolsheviks have done. They've murdered these uh, officers in cold blood. They were prisoners of war. And because the Germans knew that the Poles had been looking for their officers, they also said that they'd found over 10,000 bodies, which was complete nonsense because what they had found was the mass grave for one of the camps which was about 4000 of them the other two camps the um, mass graves were not found until the collapse of communism when the soviets finally owned up to what had happened but uh, so an enormous political row kicked off as a result of this because as soon as the nazis said look what the bolsheviks have done um the uh, soviet union reposted with an equally outraged public declarations saying it wasn't us, it was the Nazis. It wasn't April 1940, as the Nazis are saying, it was later, it was 1941, when the Nazis had already occupied that that part of Russia. Um, so in the middle of this, obviously, the, the, the Allies were stuck, not really, as you said, it was, you know, nobody was inclined to trust the Nazis at that stage of the war. Um, at the same time, uh, the Poles, the Polish government, because of the efforts that had been going on to find their officers for so long, had a pretty good idea that it probably was the Soviets who were responsible. And obviously at that time, you know, we didn't have social media, we didn't have the internet, pockets of information were, were fairly localised. So, for example, in occupied Poland, where they had been living under really brutal Nazi occupation for three years, when the news was first given out by the Nazis... The Polish people were inclined to think that it was a, a lie. It was some sort of particularly malicious form of Nazi propaganda to blame the Soviets. And it was only as more information came out that they realised that actually, in this case, the Nazis were not culpable. Um, but great, a great deal of effort on the part of the Nazis went into trying to convince people. So the only acceptable neutral arbiter would have been the uh, International Red Cross. And the Polish government in exile in London called for the site to be investigated by the International Red Cross in Geneva. But unfortunately, this could never go ahead, because in order for that investigation to happen, the Red Cross had to have the agreement of all parties concerned, which meant the, the Germans, who were perfectly happy for it to go ahead, and the Russians. And of course, the Russians refused access. And therefore, what what, what was left to happen was the, uh, the Nazis invited a medical commission to come and investigate the site. But because it was made up of doctors who were taken from uh, countries that were occupied by the Nazis, obviously its integrity could easily be questioned. The Polish Red Cross sent a commission to the site. They also investigated it. Um, and then later in nineteen forty four the Soviets had their own medical commission so this this grave site became this extraordinary place of you know one commission after another desperately trying to prove oh well look they these bodies have lain in the ground for three years no they've it's two years no it's this amount of time and um it, it was very unedifying but also rather sort of fascinating period in terms of the way propaganda is used by governments. Um, as a a, a weapon to uphold a particular narrative.
3: And and both Germany and the Soviet Union were essentially trying to appeal to Britain and America to make them believe their version of events. Obviously, as we know, it was the Soviets who committed this atrocity. Did the British and Americans have a good sense as that was the case or were they genuinely unsure?
4: It's a very interesting question as to the stance of the Allies in this. It, it, I mean, it's an unenviable position to be in. You're in the middle of a war, and your greatest enemy, the, the Nazis, are accusing your not much loved but very much needed ally, the Soviet Union, of a heinous crime. In return, your ally is accusing your enemy of this crime. The place where the crime has taken place is, the, is a war zone. And in the absence of the International Red Cross, there's no way of verifying 100% what had happened. Having said that, because the Polish government in exile had a lot of information at its disposal, because there was a Polish Red Cross Commission that was sent out there and did their own research, because the Nazis flew in parties of all sorts of people, but including members of the Polish underground, Polish intellectuals, to see for themselves, there was a, a overwhelming consensus from the Poles who had no motivation to blame Soviets or or Nazis, you know, more than the other. They hated both of them. So there was no motivation for them to pick one side over another fallaciously. So the Poles themselves had presented a great deal of evidence saying it was actually a Soviet crime. But for political reasons, which are fairly obvious, a kind of realpolitik of the time, neither the British nor the Americans were willing to say in the public sphere that they thought it was a Soviet crime for the obvious reason that they didn't want to upset Stalin, upon whom they relied utterly to defeat Hitler. And and although Churchill was uh, conscious of, you know, what a difficult moral question this was, he was nevertheless adamant that, you know, we're fighting Hitler at this moment, and we need the Soviet Union to fight Hitler. It is Stalin who's going to help us defeat Hitler, not, sadly, Poland, a strategically unimportant, if very loyal ally. So the the United States and and the British essentially indulged in a a lot of studious fence-sitting where they used the fact that the site of the massacre could not be properly investigated and used to say, we can't know for sure. So it, it was a kind of studied ambiguity that suited them politically.
3: But there, there were clear signs that this had been a Soviet massacre because, I mean, for one thing, there was no evidence of any, anything after the date of April 1940 on the men and the things about their clothing. So, I mean, really, if anyone had studied it properly, it was pretty unambiguous who had done the crime.
4: Yes, I mean, it's amazing what you can convince yourself of if that's what you need to convince yourself of. But you're absolutely right that um, there had been absolutely no word from any single prisoner uh, since March, April 1940 that had been verified with families in Poland um there, there was a whole question of uh, what they were wearing there was the order in which they were found in the mass graves uh, which basically exactly matched the order in which they had left the camp which you know had the soviet story been true that would have meant that for you know nearly 2 years they you know they had been wandering around and then somehow had miraculously ended up dead in the same order in which they'd arrived which makes no sense so you're right if anyone had interrogated it carefully enough it, it was pretty obvious, but there was a general consensus within the corridors of power in, in Britain and the United States that, um, you know, Stalin couldn't be crossed in in this matter. And so they they let it ride. So for the next 40 or so years, officially, the Katya was a, a Nazi crime committed in the autumn of 1941. And that's what it said on all the monuments, uh, and that's what it said in history books that were produced in Eastern Europe. So yeah, like you say, it's not until, I think, 1990
3: that the Soviet government admit responsibility. Why do you think it took them so long to confess to what they'd done, especially as they'd already had been a partial denunciation of Stalinism, the perpetrators were all dead? Why did it take them four or five decades to come clean?
4: That's a really interesting question. and um, Because, as you say, in, in the 1950s, Khrushchev, uh, you know, made a point of denouncing, uh, rejecting Stalinism and denouncing a lot of Stalinist crimes. And he chose not to take Katyn on board at that particular moment in time. Possibly for the reason that Katyn was not considered a, a Soviet crime, because it had they'd gone to such an amount of effort to say that it was a Nazi crime, it would have been doubly embarrassing at that at that moment to say, oh, "Well, actually, you know, that that was all lies." Having said that, um, I suspect that had they owned up to it at that point, they could have saved an enormous amount of, you know, the problems and ramifications, and, which echo until today as a consequence of this massive lie that's been perpetuated. So long. And I think that having, once Khrushchev had not admitted to it, you're then, once someone starts to lie about something and then they keep on lying, then they get further and further entrenched in the lie, and then it gets harder and harder to row back. So I think it was generally felt that after that point, there was no point in admitting it. And so it wasn't until, as you say, until the collapse of communism that actually, you know, the the whole edifice came crumbling down and, and, and the truth came out
3: but even actually as you highlight in the book when when the truth did come out there wasn't a sense of oh we've been lying all this time it was we found this document that it turns out we did it after all it was really <laughs> as if they hadn't known
4: sort of yes i mean there was there was a yes it was a, a question of how how do we admit this without fully admitting that we've known about it all along so so part part of this was sort of true in the sense that the entire edifice of the soviet lie had been based on this medical commission that they had called the Bodenko Commission that they had sent to Katyn in 1944. That had been this extraordinary kind of fake uh, medical investigation where they had planted uh, documents on the bodies with the nine, dates of 1941 on them and that gone to great lengths to make it look at they'd found witnesses who'd said, Oh, yes, I, I heard the Nazis. You know, I heard them all drinking after they'd been shooting in the forest, this kind of thing. Um, and until the late 1980s, this was considered the only documentation that, that there was. And some, it was actually Russian historians, Soviet Russian historians, who had started during the whole period under Gorbachev of Glasnost and Perestroika. They had been, his, Russian historians had been allowed access to archives that had previously been closed And what they found there were not the records of the prisoners, which had been destroyed in 1959 by the KGB, but they found all the dispatch information about the the NKVD troop movements and it allowed them to piece together what had happened at that time. And it was really, really hard to refute. So I suppose when the Soviet government said, oh, look, we found new evidence it wasn't a complete lie you know they had found new evidence it's just you know they had known all along that, 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 that it was a soviet crime and they were careful to point to it as you know the nkvd it was beria it was stalin and to you know not emphasize the fact that uh, subsequent iterations of the soviet regime had colluded in keeping up the lie
3: and in more recent years, what has Katyn meant
4: for relations between Russia and Poland? So the relationship between Russia and Poland about, around Katyn has been very fraught um, for obvious reasons. I mean, from a Polish perspective, it, you know, it's important to remember that this particular group of men, although not maybe numerically so great in terms of the number of people who've been massacred in various parts of Eastern Europe over the last century, um, they represented very well-known people, a particular category of people. you know they were judges, teachers, professors, journalists, um, you know military officers, experts of every field. and they all, you know, everybody knew their name, everybody knew who was missing. It was, it was a very um, important category of people. And for the relatives and for the families who knew some most of the truth, they didn't know the details to have spent so long where they were not allowed to speak about it, they were not allowed to commemorate it, where they were not, you know, if if your child was uh, making an application to go to university in Poland and they had to fill in you know, what had happened to their father during the war, they had to just put something like, you know, he died in the war. They were not allowed to speak about it. So there was an enormous amount of pent-up resentment uh, in Poland on this subject. In Russia, it was actually much less well-known, there was much less information about it until the end of communism. Um, so when the truth came out, it was a huge sort of flood of uh, scholars looking for information, a lot of the Western publications being made available, because obviously during this entire period when nobody had been able to speak about it in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, many books had been written on the subject, many theories had been put forward, So there there was a huge kind of burgeoning of investigation uh, on both Russian and uh, Polish sides. Um, And to some extent, that began to lead to a a softening, uh, to some kind of reciprocal understanding of what it meant. But there was always a a kind of difficulty from the Russian perspective of accepting that these Polish victims were in any way exceptional, if you like, because, of course, you're talking about a country where, you know, not just tens of thousands, but millions of Soviet citizens had been murdered under the same brutal leadership of, of, of Stalin. And in fact, many Soviet victims of the NKBD had been buried in the same mass graves as the Polish victims. So I suppose there was always a debate about why did why does this group of men have greater significance than these others, Um, and and that has continued to be an an issue.
3: And I suppose on a a related point, millions of Poles were murdered in the Second World War by either the Nazis or by the Soviet Union. So why do you feel the story of these 20,000 Poles is such an important one to tell?
4: I think for me the the importance of Katyn resides um, in the entire story because it's not just... The way that they were murdered, I mean, it, it is, it, despite the obviously the numerical competition in the Second World War, you've got so many examples of just extreme brutality and awfulness on every side. And particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, it's just unthinkable the amount of um, brutality that went on during and after the war there. But I think the fact that they were prisoners of war, is is a very particular thing because that's a certain status that you have. You're not a criminal, you're a prisoner of war, which makes it stand out even amongst Soviet crimes. But most importantly, it's about the lie, the the whole edifice, this entire fake narrative that was, you know, it's a very, very contemporary theme that runs through Katyn. It's one of the things that really interested me when writing about it is the fact that this is a, a, a false narrative that was maintained at enormous expense of time and effort by the, the Soviets and by the communist poles, in order to um, create an alternative story. And the fact that that lie was perpetrated by a government, by a state, obviously in Eastern Europe, they're fairly used to the fact that, you know, uh, under communism, they were being lied to quite a lot and around the world, people are being lied to by many uh authorities but the length of time and the nature of the way that it was lied about has enormous echoes now and the fact that this matter is still live if you like and that's partly to do with the Smolesque tragedy of 2010 which is a whole other issue that has perpetuated the whole problem between russia and poland um but just that fact of of um creating an alternative narrative and forcing it on people and suppressing the truth makes it a really, really contemporary story, I think, because the methods used by the NKVD are startlingly similar to what you see when you look at the poisoning, whether it's or whether it, or whether it's Navalny, that, you know, this combination of brutality, cruelty, but also a certain kind of absurdity about the level of detail that they're prepared to go into to create this story you know the underpants or the perfume bottle these things um it hasn't changed
3: so in your last answer you mentioned the recent plane crash Smolensk plane crash and how that has brought cat in more into the public focus i wonder if you could just explain for our listeners what happened there
4: so Yes, so in 2010, things were actually looking quite positive in terms of reconciliation between Russia and Poland. And it was the 70th anniversary of the Katyn massacre. Um, And it was decided to have a joint Russian-Polish celebration. And there were two different ceremonies planned. And at the time, Vladimir Putin was prime minister. And there was one sort of state occasion with the heads of states that involved him and Donald Tusk, who was at the time prime minister of Poland, And they had a ceremony at the site. And then there was a a Polish ceremony uh, to which the president of Poland, um, President Kaczynski, Lech Kaczynski, was to attend along with uh, many Polish dignitaries and about 400 chosen members of Katyn families, scouting associations, choirs, all sorts of people. And it was more like a kind of pilgrimage. This was due to take place in April 2010. And the plane, the presidential plane that was carrying the president, his wife, and just under 100 Polish dignitaries, so again, a kind of elite group of Poles, um, on its way to Smolensk Airport, crashed just outside, killing everyone on board. And it was actually this event that first struck my interest about um Katyn, because I realised at the time that, uh, because it was in the newspapers everywhere in Britain, that actually most of my friends had never heard about Katyn. And uh, it made me think about why that was and why it might be worth writing about it. So fast forward 10 years and <laughs> now we know. Um, but the awful echo, I mean, it's uncanny, obviously, that you would have this crash and that it's, uh, you know, Poland's elite who are destroyed in in, in this dreadful accident. Um, Initially, this led to a kind of further reconciliation between the two countries. There was an investigation, the Russians did an investigation, the Polish government under Donald Tusk did an investigation and came to the conclusion that um, it was a combination of pilot error and poor visibility and uh, a very poorly equipped uh, military, not a civil airport. So initially it looked like this wasn't going to have such terrible ramifications and it was going to form part of a, a progressive softening of relations. But that didn't last very long. And particularly after 2015, when um, Lekashinsky's uh, political party, um, Law and Justice came to power, they started taking a much more aggressively anti-Russian line on this. And they declared that the investigation that was run by Donald Tusk was uh, inconclusive and had suppressed information. They launched their own investigation, which reported back saying that they thought there'd been an explosion on board and that the Kremlin was responsible for it. So you've kind of gone full circle here where uh, the Polish government for whatever reason, has concluded that actually this was not an accident. It was an act of Kremlin-sponsored sabotage. And this has led to, you know, with the uh, changing attitudes in Russia as well, under Putin, a kind of hardening of their line towards uh, neighbouring countries. This has kind of brought things back to a very kind of frosty era, and once again, you know, without a fully neutral investigation of the Smolensk air crash, nobody can really say 100%, you know, whether this is just a conspiracy theory or whether there's some truth in it. I personally couldn't possibly make any kind of comment uh, either way. Um, but it has soured relations again, this whole uh, uncertainty. And it has been used on both sides for political gain. So in Poland, there's because there's been a sort of more of a kind of nationalist narrative, it has suited them to paint Russia as the eternal enemy, that Poland is the eternal victim. And on the Russian side, where being patriotic and being in support of Mother Russia has been equally important, um, they have chosen to underplay Stalin's role as a brutal tyrant and only um, point to his role as the great patriotic leader in World War II. And one of the really sad things is that it is still today, we are still seeing these reverberations of disbelief, conspiracy theories. You know, there are people in Russia who still think that it's c- Katyn's a Nazi crime. There are people in Poland who think one thing or another. And I think it's a very good illustration of the way that um, lying to your people, <laughs> lying to people, just ends up in an endless repetition of a cycle of people disbelieving authority, disbelieving factual evidence uh, and a general atmosphere of mistrust, which means that conspiracy theories flourish and then you end up in a kind of looking-glass world where nobody knows what's true. And again, that's a very, very contemporary theme for us to reflect on. That was Jane Rogoiska.
2: Her book, Surviving Katin, Stalin's Polish Massacre and the Search for the Truth is out now, published by One World. You can find a link in the description episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with a discussion about medieval Ethiopia. We'd love to know what you think about History Extra, So we're running a survey to ask you what you love about the podcast and what you think we could do better. It should only take five minutes to fill out and you'll be entered into a prize draw for the chance to win one of seven £100 Voucher Express gift cards. The prize draw is open to UK residents only and runs until Sunday the 16th of May. So to have your say, just head to bit.ly forward slash HEPodSurvey. Where you can also find the full terms and conditions. That's bit.ly/slash hepodsurvey.